millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Famed American writer Joan Didion passed away on December 22, 2021, at the age of 87. Well known for her intimate essays, political writings, and non-fiction books, Joan Didion wrote about the realities of American life in the 1960s and 70s through an honest and personal lens. She established a new kind of journalism that captured the mood of the times. And in her later life, she wrote of her most enduring loves and her most profound losses. A longtime resident of New York City, Joan Didion was born in California and relocated to Los Angeles in 1964 with her husband and fellow writer, John Gregory Dunn. A fifth-generation Californian, it was the place she knew best and wrote about most often. And it was there in 1966, in a rundown rented house in Hollywood, that she penned a story for the Saturday Evening Post, originally called, How Can I Tell Them There's Nothing Left? It was a story about a murder trial in San Bernardino County, a sleepy enclave of subdivisions and middle-class families about an hour east of Los Angeles. On the surface, the story was a tawdry tabloid tale of sex, jealousy, and murder. But for Joan Didion, it was so much more. It was a story about love, loss, and death in the land of opportunity. A perfect suburban couple living the California dream until everything went horribly wrong. The story was later added to Didion's first book of essays, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, and was retitled Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream. This is the story. On the night of October 7, 1964, at approximately 1.50 a.m., the Alta Loma Fire Department and Highway Patrol 
were notified of a car fire on Banyan Road. Alta Loma is a small Southern California city nestled in the foothills of the San Gabriel Mountain Range in San Bernardino County. Alta Loma was home to old citrus groves, vineyards, and eucalyptus trees before the urban sprawl of Los Angeles County found middle-class families building homes high in the hills. And Banyan Road was well-known to locals for its steep inclines and dangerous corners. It wasn't the first car accident emergency crews had been called to on that treacherous roadway. When the fire department and highway patrol arrived at the fiery scene on that particular moonless night, they were met by a frantic woman and a man. The slender brunette woman said something had gone wrong with her car, a 1964 black Volkswagen Beetle, while she was on her way home from picking up milk at an all-night market. She said the car had suddenly veered to the side of the road and had then burst into flames. Luckily, she had managed to get out, but her husband was still trapped in the burning car. The woman told the officers that she had tried to reach him, but his door was locked, so she ran to a nearby residence to ask for help. There, she had asked the homeowner to call the fire department and the family friend who had brought her back to the scene of the accident. But now, standing in front of the burning Volkswagen Beetle on Banyan Road, there was nothing the emergency responders could do to save the life of the man trapped inside the car. It was too late. Fortunately, the woman had escaped without a single burn or scratch. The distraught woman identified herself as Lucille Miller. She lived at 8488 Bella Vista Street, just three miles from the accident. Mrs. Miller said that she and her husband had three children. And now she would have to go home and break the news to them about their father. What will I tell the children when there's nothing left? Nothing left in the casket, she cried. How can I tell them there's nothing left? Mrs. Miller was taken home by her friend while firefighters worked hard to extinguish the fire. Inside the car, sitting in the passenger's seat, they found the badly burned remains of the woman's husband, who was later identified as 39-year-old Gordon Eugene Miller, a local dentist. It was a gruesome scene. The car fire had burned Gordon Miller's body beyond recognition. But in examining the charred wreckage, the firefighters noticed that the car did not appear to have been in an accident of any sort, and the car's gas tank had not ruptured. So what had caused the car to explode in flames? Looking in what was left of the back seat, they discovered a portable gasoline can tipped over and missing its cap. 
Suddenly, what was initially thought to be a tragic accident was looking more suspicious. The police needed to talk to Mrs. Miller again. But that wasn't going to happen anytime soon because the distraught housewife had already contacted her attorney. In fact, he was the family friend standing with her at the accident scene. Lucille Miller wasn't going to be talking to anyone. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you the true story of a fatal car accident on a lonely stretch of road that turned out to be so much more. What first appeared to be a tragic death would quickly unwind into a tangled web of romance, deceit, greed, and ultimately murder. It was a sensational crime that dominated the headlines in Southern California in 1965. And it has since been immortalized by one of America's greatest writers. This is Double Indemnity, Murder in the Suburbs. It was a gruesome scene. They found the badly burned remains of a woman's husband, Dr. Miller. Lucille Maria Maxwell was born on January 17, 1930, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She was the only child of Gordon and Lily Maxwell, who were both school teachers and members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, whose members did not drink, smoke, wear makeup, or jewelry, and observed the Sabbath on Saturday. When she was 18, Lucille Maxwell enrolled at Walla Walla College in Washington State the Adventist school where her parents were teaching. While at college, Lucille met Gordon Eugene Miller, a handsome 24-year-old dental student who everyone called Cork. According to their families, it was love at first sight. In 1949, Lucille and Gordon were married while he was stationed at Fort Lewis as a medical officer in the U.S. Army. After his military discharge, Gordon set up a private dental practice in Oregon, while Lucille stayed home to raise the couple's two young children. In 1957, the Millers moved to Southern California, so Gordon could pursue further education. While Gordon had followed his father and brother into dentistry, he wanted to switch to general medicine and was hoping to attend medical college at the nearby Seventh-day Adventist Loma Linda University Medical Center. The family moved to Alta Loma in San Bernardino County, where Gordon set up another dental practice. They moved into a modest house and eventually became a well-known and respected couple in the small city. By 1964, the Millers had three children, Deborah, 14, Guy, 10, and Ronnie, 8. They now lived in a beautiful California bungalow on a one-acre piece of property they had custom-built at 8, 4, 
88 Bella Vista Drive. The house was twice as big as their last one, and the kids had plenty of room to play. But trouble was brewing in the Miller's 15-year marriage. Gordon Miller was a quiet, introverted man with a good career, nice home, and loving family. But he was terribly unhappy. His dreams of becoming a doctor had never materialized, and he told his accountant that he was sick of looking into open mouths. He had been hospitalized with a bleeding ulcer and suffered from bouts of depression and migraine headaches. He was taking drugs he had prescribed to himself, and according to his wife, he had even threatened suicide. In July of 1964, Lucille had had enough of her husband's mood swings and filed for divorce. Their suburban California dream had imploded, and the couple were thousands of dollars in debt. But one month later, the Millers reconciled. They started seeing a marriage counselor and talked about having a fourth child. By October, Lucille and Gordon seemed to be back to their normal domestic routine. Gordon was still looking into open mouths, and Lucille busied herself with the children's activities and household duties. Wednesday, October 7th, 1964, was just another ordinary day for the Millers in Alta Loma. The temperature had reached 102 degrees in San Bernardino County that afternoon, and Lucille had spent the day running errands and dealing with the children who were off school. When Gordon arrived home from work in the late afternoon, he was upset because he had hit and killed a dog with the family's Volkswagen. The unfortunate accident had left a small dent in the car and had triggered another one of his debilitating migraines. He told his wife that his head felt like it had a Mack truck on it. Fortunately, Lucille had picked up a refill of his prescription that afternoon, a sedative called Nembutal. Later that evening, the couple watched a movie, and when the movie ended around 11, Gordon asked for some hot chocolate. They were out of milk, so Lucille suggested they drive to the all-night market. Gordon, still feeling unwell and groggy from his medication, took a blanket and pillow from the couch and climbed into the passenger seat of the Volkswagen. Lucille reached over to lock his door as she slowly backed down the driveway. It was just after midnight. It was well past 3 a.m. on the morning of October 8th before the Alta Loma fire crew were able to pull Gordon Miller's charred remains from inside the burned-out Volkswagen on Banyan Street. And with what they had observed at the scene, they definitely needed to talk to Mrs. Miller again. From the little she had already told them about the accident, things just weren't adding up. How had she escaped from the vehicle without a scratch? 
but her husband had been unable to. And why was there an open gas can in the back seat? Sheriff Frank Bland sent three homicide detectives to question Lucille Miller. But by the time they arrived at the Miller home, they were told that she had been given a sedative by a doctor who had been called in by her attorney. The detectives were told that she had suffered an awful shock and needed to rest. She would not be able to speak with them. The following morning, news of the fiery crash that had claimed the life of a local dentist was front-page news across San Bernardino County. Dr. Miller had been well-liked by many. What a tragedy for Mrs. Miller and the couple's three young children. Everyone was talking about it, and everyone in the small suburban enclave of Alta Loma felt sorry for the young widow. Well, not exactly everyone. Twelve hours after the car fire on Banyan Street, 34-year-old Lucille Miller was arrested and taken to the San Bernardino Sheriff's Office for questioning. After their initial investigation at the scene, the police were certain of two things. The Miller's car had not been in an accident, and it had not exploded. It looked like the fire had been deliberately set, and if that was true, Dr. Miller had been murdered. What first seemed like a tragic car accident had taken a sinister turn, and now the wife of the dead dentist was being questioned by the police. Soon, the story reached beyond the local newspapers and into the Los Angeles Times. The coroner's office had already announced that Dr. Miller was apparently alive when the fire started, and an autopsy indicated that he had no injuries before he burned to death. Toxicology tests were being conducted to determine if he was under the influence of alcohol or drugs at the time the car burst into flames. The police had a lot of questions for Lucille Miller because the evidence at the scene just wasn't matching her original story. The skid marks on the road were much shorter than they normally would be in a loss of control, as Lucille had reported. The car was still in a low gear, unusual for a crash, and the car was dug into the soft shoulder, implying someone had tried to push the car the rest of the way over the embankment. Also, the empty can of gasoline was lying on the back seat of the car sideways, while two charred milk cartons were still standing upright. Wouldn't they have fallen over when the car veered and suddenly stopped? What exactly had happened between approximately 12.30 a.m. when the fire broke out and 1.50 a.m. when it was reported? But questioning the newly widowed housewife was still proving difficult. 
Her lawyer, Edward Foley, and his team of associates had set up camp in the women's section of the San Bernardino County Jail, where Lucille was being held. Sitting on a chair outside her cell, each lawyer was taking a four-hour shift. They did not want their client interrogated by the police without a lawyer present. When Lucille finally spoke with investigators, she repeated the story she had told the highway patrol with a few additional details. She said that she and her husband had been watching TV on the night of October 8th when her husband asked for hot chocolate. They were out of milk, so they decided to drive to the all-night grocery store to pick some up. They left their three children at home sleeping. Lucille stated that her husband was taking drugs for his migraines, which made him groggy, so she decided to drive. When they were driving back from the store, Lucille said her husband was asleep in the passenger seat, wrapped up in a blanket. She was going approximately 35 miles per hour when the car suddenly pulled sharply to the right. It bounded over a curb and stopped on the soft shoulder. Lucille said she heard her husband groan. He wasn't moving, and she assumed he had hit his head when the car jumped the curb. No one wore seatbelts in those days. Then the car burst into flames. She said the flames were coming from the back of the car, which was where the engine of the Volkswagen was located. I jumped out and ran to the passenger door, said Lucille, but it was locked from inside. She said she broke the window with a rock, but was pushed back because of the flames. She then tried to wake her husband by poking him with a stick, but he wasn't moving. Realizing she needed help, Lucille said she ran approximately one mile along the deserted road, yelling for anyone, but there were no houses and no other cars passed by. She then ran back past the burning car and said she could see her husband engulfed in flames. He was just black, she said. Then, She ran in the opposite direction until she spotted a house and banged on the door, waking the residents of the home. When Lucille Miller arrived at the stranger's home seeking help, she asked them to call the fire department, and then she asked them to call her lawyer. But by the time the emergency crews arrived at the scene of the accident, an hour and a half had gone by. It was way too late to save Dr. Miller. And it took them another hour to extinguish the fire and remove his badly burned remains. When asked about the gas canister in the back seat of the car, Lucille said that her husband always insisted on carrying extra gas as they lived five miles from the nearest gas station and he had run out of gas on a few occasions. It was a plausible explanation, but the police still weren't convinced of Mrs. Miller's story. On Tuesday, October 13th, five days after the car fire on Banyan Street, 34-year-old Lucille Maria Miller was formally charged with Gordon Miller's death. 
For her arraignment, Lucille arrived at the San Bernardino courthouse with a team of nine lawyers. But the odd show of legal might did not impress the court. She was denied bail and was barred from attending her husband's funeral later that same day. But across town, at the Draper Mortuary Chapel, over 200 mourners gathered to pay their final respects to Dr. Gordon Miller, including his three children. A tape recording of the service was made for his imprisoned widow. And while Lucille sat in prison for the next two months, her large legal team tried desperately to get the charges dropped and get her home. But at the same time, investigators were learning much more about the diminutive housewife. Rumor had it that Mrs. Miller had been having an affair with a prominent local attorney named Arthwell Hayton. And just six months before Gordon Miller's untimely death, Arthwell's wife had also died suddenly. The police were now looking into a second suspicious death related to Lucille Miller. But Mr. Hayton was denying any extramarital wrongdoing. The former member of the district attorney's office even held a press conference at his office to publicly deny any romantic link to Lucille Miller, saying she and her husband had just been family friends. Would you deny that you were having an affair with Mrs. Miller? A reporter asked. I would deny that there was any romance on my part whatsoever, said the attorney. Things were going from bad to worse for Lucille Miller. She had been charged with her husband's murder, and now the news of her suspected infidelity was front-page headlines all over Southern California. But just before her trial was set to begin, her attorney had some new information that he hoped would impact his client's future. Mrs. Miller was three and a half months pregnant with her fourth child. She claimed the child was her deceased husband's. Lucille's defense attorney was hopeful that his client's delicate condition would sway the court into granting her bail. But it did not. The pregnant woman would remain behind bars until her trial. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Lucille Miller's trial began on January 11th, 1965. It was a typical bright, sunny California day, and the line outside the San Bernardino courthouse had begun forming at 6 a.m. that morning. Many county residents were so desperate to get a seat inside that the glass courtroom doors were shattered in the chaos. It was the most sensational trial to take place in sleepy San Bernardino, and everyone wanted to get a glimpse of the pretty brunette defendant. For the modest suburban city, it was hard to believe that one of their own was on trial for a cold-blooded murder. But the small courtroom only had enough room for 43 spectators, leaving many disappointed. And it wasn't just the people of San Bernardino that were interested in the salacious murder trial. The Miller's story had gained attention across the state, and many of Southern California's crime reporters had set up camp in the town for the duration. Lucille's parents had traveled to California to support their daughter. And seated behind her mother was Deborah Miller, the couple's 14-year-old daughter. Her young brothers would not be attending the trial. Flanked by her team of lawyers, Lucille Miller, who had just turned 35, appeared relaxed and composed the newspapers announced that she had put on 25 pounds in prison due to her pregnancy. Her lawyer had arranged a hairdresser and new maternity dresses for the trial. But regardless of her well-coiffed and calm appearance, Lucille Miller was nervous. She knew that the stakes were very high. The prosecutor had already indicated during a preliminary hearing 
that he would be seeking the death penalty if she was found guilty. In his opening remarks, prosecutor Don Turner began by telling the court that 39-year-old Gordon Miller had been burned alive, murdered in the early hours of October 8th, and the person responsible was the defendant sitting in the courtroom, Mrs. Lucille Miller. But why did Lucille Miller want her husband dead? The state would argue that Mrs. Miller had been having an affair and wanted out of her troubled marriage. The Millers were heavily in debt and had previously discussed divorce. But according to the prosecutor, Lucille Miller wanted more than her freedom and an alimony check. She wanted a higher status in life, one like Arthwell Hayton, her lover, could provide. This is a woman motivated by love and greed, said the prosecutor. It was later discovered that she had even forged her husband's signature on the mortgage documents for their new home. A home they couldn't really afford, and one that had created more stress for her overwhelmed husband, who suffered from debilitating migraines and depression. She wanted more than her husband was providing with his $30,000 yearly salary, said the prosecutor, and her ticket out was his life insurance. If Mr. Miller died, she would receive $70,000. But if his death appeared to be an accident, she would receive a double indemnity insurance of 140000 That's why she had to make his death look like an accident, declared the prosecutor. And it was the state's contention that on the night in question, Lucille secretly gave her husband an overdose of sedatives in hot chocolate to make him extra drowsy. Then, she suggested that they drive to the store to buy more milk. After picking up the milk, Lucille pulled the family Volkswagen over to the side of Banyan Street, an isolated and steep road that Mrs. Miller was very familiar with. She stopped the Volkswagen at the highest point in the road. And it was there, the prosecutor said, that Mrs. Miller attempted to push the car over the embankment into a lemon grove below, hoping it would then catch on fire. But when she couldn't move the car, she poured gasoline all over the inside of the vehicle and ignited it. Mr. Miller, in his drugged state, was unable to get out of the car and was burned alive while his pregnant wife watched. Gordon Miller's death was a cold, calculated, premeditated murder, said the prosecutor, and the state would prove it beyond any doubt. In his opening remarks, defense attorney Edward Foley told the jury that his client was completely innocent. He stated that the sheriff's department had made numerous errors in their examination of the accident scene and had rushed to judgment in arresting his client. The evidence would show that the fire started accidentally and that his client had tried desperately to pull her husband from the burning car. Mrs. Miller 
was a decent, law-abiding wife and mother, said Foley. And she needed to be sent home to be with her children, including the one she was expecting. The first witness called by the defense was Sandy Slagle, a 23-year-old medical student at Loma Linda University, who had lived with the Millers since 1959. Dr. Miller was assisting her financially with her medical studies. Sandy described Dr. Miller as a kind and introverted man who suffered from depression. When questioned about Dr. Miller's drug use, she stated that he would often take sedatives which would make him groggy. She said Dr. Miller knew he was addicted and had asked her how he could cut down on using the pills. She had suggested he get professional help. When asked if she had ever heard Dr. Miller threaten suicide, Sandy Slagle said yes on multiple occasions. According to her, Dr. Miller would threaten his wife by saying he was going to go to the mountains and drive his car off a cliff. Whenever this happened, she said that she and Lucille Miller would hide the car keys from him until he calmed down. Over the next few days, the defense called several more witnesses that spoke positively of Lucille Miller's character. Her lawyer knew that his client's moral character would be front and center in the jury's minds as they weighed the evidence that would be presented by the prosecution. The first witness called by the prosecution was William Snare, an automobile arson expert. He testified that in his examination of the vehicle, he believed that the fire had begun inside the Miller's Volkswagen rather than from a gas leak. It was deliberately set, said Mr. Snare, who had been an investigator for over 26 years. Gasoline, or some highly volatile fluid, was poured over the interior of the car and ignited, he said. When cross-examined by the defense and questioned about the gas can found in the car, the expert witness told the court that he had been unable to examine it because it had been mysteriously lost and was no longer in evidence. Focusing on the car, the prosecution then called two Volkswagen experts to the stand. Both mechanics said they found no deficiency in the steering mechanism of the Miller's car that would have caused it to veer off the road as Lucille Miller had indicated. Then, in a surprise announcement, the prosecutor advised the court that the sheriff's office had conducted a secret experiment on a car that was identical to the Miller's Volkswagen Beetle. They had gone to a local wrecking yard and torched a Beetle from the inside to determine the fire pattern. The results were almost identical to the charred remains of the Miller's car. The next witness called by the prosecution was a middle-aged woman who had seen the Millers on the night of the car fire. She stated that she had seen Mrs. Miller inside the all-night supermarket on the night of October 7th, just after midnight. Outside in the parking lot, she noticed that Lucille Miller was driving, and there appeared to be something slumped in the front seat, 
At the time, she thought it was a bundle of clothing. Later on the same day, a criminologist for the San Bernardino Sheriff's Department testified that a toxicological examination of Dr. Miller's vital organs showed that he had enough barbiturates in his system at the time of death to put a normal man in a coma or deep sleep. On February 4th, the prosecution called Arthwell Hayton to the stand. The handsome 41-year-old San Bernardino lawyer was finally admitting that he and the accused had been secret lovers despite his earlier very public denials. Arthwell and Lucille had known each other for several years. The two couples and their children had been friends. Their affair began in November of 1963. The lovers would check into local hotel rooms and had spent time together in Palm Springs. And according to Mr. Hayton, Lucille Miller had proposed marriage. But Hayton said he told Lucille that he had no plans to leave his wife. He said she did not take the news well. Then, five months after beginning their affair, Arthwell's wife died suddenly. It was Saturday, April 24, 1964. Arthwell Hayton had taken his boat over to Catalina Island that weekend with his eldest son. He said he called home at 9 o'clock on the Friday night, but did not talk to his wife because Lucille Miller answered the telephone and said that Elaine was showering. He didn't think much of it at the time because the two women were friends. The next morning, the Hayton's daughter found her mother face down in her bed. She was dead. 36-year-old Elaine Hayton, a registered nurse and mother of four, had apparently choked to death while under the influence of a heavy dose of barbiturates the same type of drugs that had been found in Gordon Miller's body. The newspapers reported the death as accidental, and when Arthwell Hayton flew home from Catalina Island that weekend, Lucille Miller met him at the airport. After his wife's death, Mr. Hayton said he ended the affair, but Lucille continued to harass him. In the summer of 1964, she apparently called him so frequently that he had to change his telephone number. The calls continued, and when he still refused to see Mrs. Miller, he said she began threatening him. According to the lawyer, she had threatened to expose their affair to his work colleagues and to his minister at the Seventh-day Adventist church. She said she would ruin me. Alarmed by her threats, he told her he would go to the police if she continued. The prosecutor then reminded the jury that this was around the same time, July 1964, that Lucille Miller had told her attorney to drop her divorce proceedings that she had filed a few months earlier. And it was at this time that the Millers decided to have a fourth child. In September, one month before his death, Gordon Miller had told his mother that he and Lucille were expecting a baby. In 
and while the state contended that Lucille had thrown herself at the married man, Arthwell Hayton said the affair was loveless on his part. Under cross-examination by the defense, Mr. Hayton was asked if he had ever told the defendant that he was in love with her. No, he replied. I may have whispered sweet nothings into her ear, but the relationship had never been about love. At the end of Arthwell Hayton's testimony, the state rested its case. And while the trial had been emotional for all concerned, the prosecutor reminded the jury to simply focus on the physical facts. The physical facts at the scene have never been explained, said Don Turner. There was a deliberate effort by Lucille Miller to get rid of her husband and collect $140,000 in insurance. If you look at the facts and the evidence, I am convinced you will come back with a verdict of first-degree murder, said the prosecutor. I am convinced justice will prevail, he added. In his summation, defense attorney Edward Foley began by urging the jurors to have open minds and to, quote, cleanse their hearts of any bias or prejudice. He knew his client's moral character was on trial. Remember what Christ said to the prostitute at the well, said the lawyer. Let him among you who is without sin cast the first stone. He reminded the jury that his client was on trial for murder, not adultery. He characterized Lucille as a woman of human frailty as expressed in her affair with Arthwell Hayton. And while he didn't condone adultery, his client should not be judged for her mistake. He ridiculed the prosecution's contention that the alleged murder was motivated by Lucille Miller's love for Mr. Hayton. I say poppycock, pure and simple, he exclaimed. Where's the proof? Regardless of the affair, her real love was for her husband and her family, said the lawyer. This was evident in her cancelling her divorce plans and agreeing to have another child. Would she want another baby by a man she was planning to kill? asked Edward Foley. And while the prosecution had painted Lucille Miller as a diabolical killer, her lawyer suggested if this was a carefully plotted fiendish scheme, why would she leave the gas can and cap in the car? That would be the stupidest thing she could do, he added. You must realize that the prosecution case is weak and is purely based on speculation, said Foley. My client's life and liberty hangs on speculation. Looking over towards his pregnant client, the defense lawyer said, Lucille Miller should be acquitted and sent home to her family so that her baby can be born at home and not in a prison. In his concluding remarks, Superior Court Judge Edward Fogg advised the jury that they could return with three possible verdicts. 
they could find Lucille Miller guilty of first-degree murder, guilty of second-degree murder, or innocent of all charges. The trial had lasted seven weeks. On Friday, March 5, 1965, after four days of deliberations, the jury of eight women and four men returned with their verdict. Guilty of murder in the first degree. The courtroom erupted. Oh my God, no, no, cried Lucille as her lawyer tried to comfort her. Sitting behind her, 14-year-old Deborah Miller couldn't believe what she had just heard. No, no, I'll never see my mother again, the distraught teenager cried out. As the jury filed out of the courtroom, Sandy Slagle, the young medical student who had lived with the Millers, charged towards them, yelling, You're murderers! Every last one of you is a murderer! You know she's innocent! In finding Lucille Miller guilty of first-degree murder, the jury had ultimately agreed with Prosecutor Don Turner's argument that Lucille had deliberately set fire to their car with her drugged husband inside it in order to get out of the marriage and collect the $140,000 double indemnity life insurance. The jury now had to decide if 35-year-old Lucille Miller would be executed in the California gas chamber or sentenced to life in prison. A pregnant woman had never been sentenced to death in the state. Three days after she was convicted of first-degree murder, prosecutor Don Turner waived his original request for the death penalty and settled for life imprisonment with the possibility of parole for the expectant mother. The jury had been spared the difficult decision of sentencing a pregnant woman to death. Lucille Miller was remanded to the California Institution for Women at Corona, not far from where she had once lived with her family. Three months later, on June 6, 1965, Lucille Miller gave birth to a healthy baby girl at a San Bernardino hospital while a prison guard stood outside her delivery room. Her eldest daughter, Deborah, took the baby home from the hospital and named her Kimi Kai. The Miller children had gone on to live with family friend and lawyer Harold Lance and his wife. Lucille Miller was never charged in the murder of Elaine Hayton. The San Bernardino County dropped their investigation into her death, despite the fact that both Elaine Hayton and Gordon Miller had high levels of sedatives in their bodies when they died, and despite the fact that Lucille Miller had been with Elaine the night before her death. Arthwell Hayton, the man Lucille apparently killed for, went on to marry his children's nanny. In 1971, after serving only seven years of her life sentence, Lucille Miller was released from prison. She changed her name and moved to Los Angeles to be closer to her children. For writer Joan Didion, 
the Miller's story wasn't just another sensational tale of a love affair and a murder in the suburbs. For her, it represented California and the idea of perfection that so many couples like the Millers had sought out in the unforgiving landscape. This is a story about love and death in the golden land and begins with the country, she wrote. This is the California where it is possible to live and die without ever eating an artichoke, without ever meeting a Catholic or a Jew. The country of teased hair and capris and the girls for whom all life's promises come down to a waltz-length wedding dress and the birth of a Kimberly or a Sherry or a Debbie. We were just crazy kids, they say without regret, and look to the future. The future always looks good in the Golden Land because no one remembers the past. Here is the last stop for all those who come from somewhere else, for all those who drifted away from the cold and the past and the old ways. Here is where they are trying to find a new lifestyle, trying to find it in the only places they know to look, the movies and the newspapers. The case of Lucille Maria Maxwell Miller is a tabloid monument to that new lifestyle. In 1991, 25 years after How Can I Tell Them There's Nothing Left was published in the Saturday Evening Post, the now famous Joan Didion received a letter that said, quote, It helped to make you famous, but it's my life. It was written by the Miller's eldest daughter, Deborah. Five years later, the two women met for the first and only time. In 2006, Deborah, now a Los Angeles teacher, wrote a personal essay for the Los Angeles Times called A Mother's Crime. She was only 14 when her father died and the state convicted her mother of his murder. But now, at age 56, she was finally ready to relive those harrowing days. In her intimate essay, Deborah writes about an unhappy home, her parents fighting behind a bedroom door, her dad always threatening to leave, and as a teenager finding out from her mother that her dad wanted to take his own life. Hide the car keys, her mother would yell, when things got really bad. Deborah knew her dad was sad, and he took a lot of pills. But still nothing prepared her for the moment he was gone. Had he finally done it? Killed himself? No. It was an accident, her mother told her, that fateful morning. In that moment, Deborah Miller remembered an odd sense of relief. With her dad gone, there would be no more fighting. I had created a whole new, better life for all of us, she wrote. I loved my daddy. It wasn't that I was glad he was dead. If I'd had to pick, 
I would have picked her to die. Lucille Miller died on November 4, 1986, at the age of 56. This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast, written and produced by Catherine Fogarty. Audio production is by Daniel Borgers at Borgers Music. Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you enjoyed this story and others, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and feel free to leave us a review. We appreciate you listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.